Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. How many of you have, have ever watched an episode, or maybe you watch regularly, uh, Lego Masters? Anybody ever watch that? I like it. It's all right. It's a good show. It's just something to watch with the family. It's clean. It's, uh, it's a good show. And one of the things about it is that I'm impressed by the artistic ability, by the creativity of these people, by these Lego masters. They are given a set period of time and a theme, and then they build things out. And I can't, I can't follow the instructions in the box, let alone just come up with something in my mind and make it look that good and move and interact. But they do this. In the show, one of the things that is uh, just kind of a, a shtick, it's a funny thing that happens, is that Will Arnett, the host of the show, uh, will each episode, when there's one hour left, he will alert everybody. The lights will turn red. The siren goes off. He yells, one hour left. And, and a lot of people gasp or they drop their bricks or they laugh because there is this emotion that happens when you're alerted like that. This, uh, this anxiety, this wave of anxiety that runs through your bloodstream. And, and we all know the feeling and none of us like it. All right. It's just not the sort of thing that anybody likes to do. You can experience this in a number of different ways. You've experienced this before if you are driving with your spouse and she lets you know that there's a cop up there, that you see, that you know that that cop is there and that you are driving the speed limit, but she needs to let you know about every single police officer on the road. You have felt this way before when there's an amber alert in the middle of the night and your phone is not silenced. You have felt this way before when there's a tornado siren. Uh, You know, Conway is right next to Conway County and sometimes those things cause issues. And so a siren alert over there, it causes anxiety. You can feel the same way when there's an alarm in the morning, the alarm that wakes you up. Pro tip, use the sleep schedule and not the alarm setting. It'll change your life. I I promise you, it's a lot better. These anxieties that we feel, this sudden shock, this uh, startling feeling is a lot of what we feel when we read Jesus' words in Mark chapter 13. For whatever reason, we feel that same sort of heart-pounding flight or freeze sensation. We don't know how to think about it, We don't know what's going on, and so we feel fear, and we tie that to the idea of be alert. We're going to talk today and challenge that idea that when we speak about the second coming of Jesus, when we talk about the the judgment of God, that instead of fear, we would respond in anticipation, in good feelings of excitement that Jesus is coming again. Let's pray together and then we will read some of this text here. God, thank you for the opportunity to be with Second Greenbrier to speak this morning. May our hearts be challenged by your word and uh, encouraged to be more like you in our community for the good of others and for your glory until you return. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 13, verse 32 through 37 is what I'm going to read. As I'm reading this, count how many times Jesus says, be alert. Count that within your minds. It'll be on the screen behind me. This is what the Bible says. Now, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. 
It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Now, Jesus, by his own words, is talking about that day. That's what he says. Now, concerning that day, the question is for you, for I, as we read this, for people who study the Bible, which day is Jesus talking about? What day is it that Jesus is sort of telling everybody, you need to be alert about this day? There's a couple of theories. The first one is that great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. It's this idea that there is coming a day in which God will judge the living and the dead. It causes anxiety within us as Christians, as, as people. If we don't know a whole lot about it, it just sounds very intimidating, standing in front of a judge. The good news, however, is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you don't need to fear the judgment of God if you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior. Never, nonetheless, we sort of—it's it's an anxiety-ridden sort of idea, this eventual judgment day of God. There's another day in which the Bible talks about that's, that's the return of Jesus Christ, the second coming of our Lord and Savior. It's the same sort of feelings. It's this idea that one day, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, a trump will sound, and Jesus will return, and the clouds will part, and those who are dead in Christ first will rise, and we will be gathered together to meet him in the air. And so that's sort of something that brings anxiety to us, right? It's something that I remember as a teenager. I was listening to preachers preach, and I thought, that sounds like a good idea, but just praying to God that it would happen sometime after my honeymoon, that that would be the time in which Jesus would return, or else it wouldn't be a great day. There's another day. It's not only the judgment of God, the second coming of Jesus, but also the temple's destruction. If you read in the text there in chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, uh, that is the context. The context is the destruction of the temple. What's happening in 13, the disciples and Jesus move across the Kidron Valley. They're looking there at Jerusalem. They see this temple. They see this glorious structure there. And it's like, or as if the disciples asked Jesus, could you, could you, you're going to need to explain a little bit more about this idea that the temple will be destroyed. Such an unfathomable, such a, a hard to believe idea. And so Jesus is explaining that. He's teaching about that. All three of these, the judgment of God, the second return of Jesus, the destruction of the temple, are probably likely some parts of what Jesus is talking about. Which one exactly? We don't know. In fact, Jesus three times in this story says, you don't know. No one knows. The details of the thing are not for us to know, but that it is going to happen. And so, in response to that, we tend to be fearful. We tend to be afraid. It's this scary feelings that are in line with anxieties about our future. In normal reality, we get, in, we get anxious about uh, going to the high school versus the junior high. We get anxious about starting colleges or a, a new career, about getting married or having children or, or, or medical appointments or what's going to be in the future. All the time, we get anxious about these future events. All the more we would be anxious about the idea that Jesus 
is going to come again and judge the living and the dead. So there is no judgment in the idea that we would be anxious. I just, I just want to challenge you. I just want to challenge the idea that Jesus is talking in a way that would make us anxious. Just from the premise that Jesus is the one talking, we ought not be afraid. He spent all of his ministry, all of his life telling people, do not be afraid. It makes very little sense to me that he would drop some breadcrumbs and, and, and paint some mysteries and hide some clues in the mountains of Jerusalem, all to make us nervous, all to make us fearful. As if when he's ascending into heaven, he says, go into all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you always. And don't forget to figure out the, the code, you know, something like that. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't intend to make us nervous. He doesn't intend to make us fearful or afraid. So then in light of his return, in light of an uncertain future that God the Father knows, but we do not, how ought we to respond? That's what Jesus is teaching us in these verses. The first and most obvious one that he wants us to do is to be alert. Be alert. He says it how many times? How many times did he say it? Four times. That's right. Four times he says it in the text. Be alert. Be alert. Be alert. Be alert. That's the starting idea and clearly the overarching instruction by Jesus. But here's the kicker. Alert in what Jesus is saying is not the same way that we think of alert. There is a nuance to it. There's a different idea to it. When we think about the second return of Jesus, when we think about Revelation and Ezekiel, we think about Matthew chapter 20 and all of the other ideas about what will happen in the future, we tend to be uh, anxious to the point that many of us will go down these Christian conspiracy theory rabbit holes. It's not what Jesus wants us to do. I got a couple of examples here where that's happened. A Christian numerologist once said that he used the geometry of the pyramids in Giza to predict that God would judge the earth on September 23rd, 2017. Didn't happen. Radio preacher Harold Camping said that the judgment day would be on May 21st, 2011. He was on a radio program that spent over $100 million to make sure that the whole world knew this prediction. And when it didn't happen, he said that it did. It was just invisible. There was a Taiwanese cult leader that predicted God would appear on Channel 18 to tell the world his plans to remove his people in spaceships disguised as clouds. He said that this would take place in 1998. So either it didn't happen or none of you were invited to the cloud spaceships. I'm old enough to remember when everybody freaked out about Y2K and the Left Behind series, that that was going to be the end of the world. We are always living in this anxiety-ridden fear about the return of Christ and what was going to happen. And yet, Jesus tells us a different way. When he says to be alert, he's not talking about be on edge. He's not talking... He's not telling you to be fearful. He's telling you to be watchful, to be serious, to live your life in light of the reality that he is coming again. That's all he's saying. I will come again, so make decisions accordingly. Be a measurable amount of fear. If you know that Jesus is returning, then, you know, balance that out in the judgments and in the equations that you make decisions about. Peter said, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be serious 
and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he doesn't want you to be fearful. He wants you to be watchful, mindful that Jesus is returning. It's not when he's returning, but that he's returning is what he's telling you in this text. Just know, just knowing the ending, knowing how things will turn out or how they will turn out affects how you are affected by the way things are going. Let me say that again because I stumbled through it. Knowing how things will turn out affects how you are affected by the way things are going. Just knowing that Jesus will return is the way that he says, be alert, be mindful, be watching that idea. But don't just stand there. Don't just be alert. Be active. Verse 34, when Jesus gives the story, he says, it is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper, be alert. Jesus indicates that those who are waiting for the return were given work to do and the authority to do it. What Jesus does not intend is that we would be preoccupied with his return, so much so that we stand around waiting and not acting. Waiting in the Bible is always active. That's important for us to think about and to remember. Waiting in the Bible is always active. We tend to think of waiting as like you just sit there and wait. But in the Bible, waiting is do something while you wait. It's not stationary. You don't just sit there hoping and thinking happy thoughts. You pray and wait. You serve and wait. You show compassion and wait. You do everything that you can and then wait on God to figure it all out, to work it all out for the good of those who love him. There's a popular bumper sticker used to be a popular bumper sticker, that read, Jesus is coming, everyone look busy. That's funny, but it's not accurate. It's misleading. It's not just busy work that we are supposed to be about. We are supposed to be about the work of Jesus, the, the Jesus mission. And while we could uh, talk a long time about a different topic, about what we should be doing, I think a different sermon, we could talk all about the fact that we are to love. And not in the mushy, butterfly, kisses sort of love, but in a love that is um, deeper and truer, compassionate. We are to love God, love others, love your neighbors, and love yourself. Loving God means that we are serious about gathering together in worship, that we take it seriously, that no other minor commitment will distract us from gathering together with the church to worship God. That's what loving God is, that we know what the Bible says, we know what he says in his word, and then we do it. Loving others means that we treat one another in the church over and over and over in the New Testament. The Bible says to love one another. It talks about the church and how we treat one another. Not gossipy, not backbiting, not undermining, not filling the gap with distrust, but filling the gap of knowledge. What, what I don't know about you and what you don't know about me, we don't fill the middle of it with distrust. We fill the middle of it with, you know, uh, acceptance or trust or I'm sure that they meant the best. That's how we're supposed to treat one another. We love God. We love one another. We love our neighbors. Now, in the Bible, the idea of loving your neighbor means to love those who would be your enemies. That's why Jesus says that the story of the Good Samaritan is such a great picture of it because the Samaritan not only loved this other person, but loved the other person that would have likely not loved him back. To love your enemies. We love God, we love others, we love our neighbors and our enemies, and then we love ourselves. 
The Bible teaches us to renew our minds, to keep ourselves unstained by the world. It means that we set boundaries. We don't allow people to talk to us in a certain way that's disrespectful. We don't allow other people to use or abuse us. We stand strong as a free moral agent. It also means that we are in relationships, we are the influencer in the relationship with those who are far from God and not being influenced by those who are far from God. You can't help it. You can't help it, teenagers. You can't help it, people, to have lots of friends and, and, and some of them be, um, have, have different standards, some of them not godly standards. And that's okay. It's okay to have relationships with people who are at different levels of their relationship with God. It's just that you are to be the influencer, the salt, the light, the one bringing them closer to God, not the one being drawn away into wickedness. That's how we love ourselves. We love God. We love Others in the church, we love our enemies, we love ourselves. All of this is for the good of others and the glory of God. This is what Jesus is already talking about in verse 10 of chapter 13. He says, it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all the nations. We are to be active. When Jesus was ascending, he left and the disciples were standing there. The angels appear and they say, why do you stand here gazing? Go. It's almost as if the angels were saying, he told you to do something, go do it. Jesus is continually in this text repeating the idea that you need to be active, be alert, do what you're supposed to do, and don't be sleeping on the job. The reality is a lot of us have fallen asleep at the will. We're convinced that the Great Commission and making disciples and loving other people, that's for somebody else to do. Somebody with like a title pastor or minister or maybe deacon, but it's not for me. It's for others to do, and we have fallen asleep at the will. So we are to be alert, be watchful, mindful, serious, and we are to be active, be at work, don't, don't be asleep. The third thing that Jesus wants us to do is to be in the house. Be alert, be active, be in the house. Verse 35 is the idea behind that. The person who is coming back is the master of the house. And I understand that we would have reservations when we read words like master and house and servants and maybe suspicious about the scenario that's going on in that case. And, and so our default idea is um, something evil, something not true, not good, but that's not the idea here. The idea here, this master of the house is, uh, the way that we would say it would be like the, the doting father of the family, the supportive and encouraging husband, the good and the gracious boss. That's the way that we would word that phrase. This is a good thing. This is a good person that we want to come back. When I was a child, my father was stationed in Okinawa in the Navy. And he was gone for a long time because that's what happens. And I remember very specifically the day that he came back. I remember the way that he looked. I remember the clothes that he was wearing. I remember the big old duffel bag that he walked in and laid in our small little kitchen there in the house that we were living there in Gulfport, Mississippi. He unzipped that big bag and he pulled out for all of us, all of us boys. My, uh, I'm the oldest of five and the youngest is a girl. She wasn't there yet. So there was just us four boys. And he gave us all each matching teddy bears. These little teddy bears that had this red plaid uh, collar and a little bow tie on it. My family, none of us had teddy bears when we were little. Uh, none of us had little uh, stuffed animals. Not because we couldn't, we just didn't. We didn't grow up with stuffed animals. So it was a bit odd, to be honest with you. It was odd that my dad would bring us a stuffed animal. We don't have stuffed animals. We don't use stuffed animals, but he brought us all of them, and I couldn't care less about that little stuffed bear. All four of us got one, right? I couldn't care less about it, but I liked it. Why? 
because it meant that dad was home. I don't want the bear, don't care about the bear, but dad was home. He was back. And even in my very young mind, in my very young brain, I figured out the idea or I could grasp the concept that my soldier dad was at some point in some airport, in some part of the globe, picking out four bears for his four sons, putting them in his bag and bringing them home. And that meant something to me. Not the bear, but the fact that dad was home. That's the way that we are to read this text. It's not as if this evil, mean uh, lord of the, uh, of the manor is, is home and we should all tremble in fear, but no, it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's that dad is home, that, that our brother is back, that, that our husband and our father and our provider and our protector, he has returned. That's the way that we should read this text. It is a loving leader. And this house, the word house there, the master of the house means family. That's the concept. This is familial language. So this is good news for those in the home, for good news for those in the family. The return of Christ is very good news for believers, not so much for those who refuse to submit to Jesus. Because when he comes back, he is very much coming back as a benevolent savior for us. But for those who are enemies of the cross, he is returning as the rightful king and the judge of the wicked. Those two things are true. Those two realities are in place. So, here is how this all sums up. Jesus will return, and that is unquestionably true. God will judge the world, and there's no doubt about it. How all of that is going to flesh out, shake out, and on which day, I have no idea. Only God knows. But what we are to do in the meantime is to not huddle in bunkers, afraid, or standing next to walls with strings stretched across some sort of timeline with every blood moon and computer virus. We should be actively working in love to spread the gospel with outsiders and to encourage insiders. Most of all, we should humble ourselves and accept that Jesus is Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father. This leads me to two questions. The first question is this is, are you in the house? Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? God created us, we rebelled, and the penalty for that is death. But Jesus took that penalty upon himself in death, resurrected, we sang about it just a moment ago, took the penalty of death and sin on himself. And for all those who would accept and believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are accepted into the family. They are born again. They are part of that family. And so the question, the most pressing question in regards to the return of Christ is not when it happens, but have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? There is a time of waiting, a time of patience, a time of grace on God's part. But when Jesus returns, that time is up. It's over. You need to have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So the first question is, are you in the house? And the second question is this. Very simply, think about this, Christians. Those of you who have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If we were to know, if we were to know that tomorrow, at some point, tomorrow, right after breakfast, Jesus will return, the question would be, what about this afternoon? Would you live differently? What would you do differently in your life between now and a known return of Jesus Christ? Hopefully, the answer would be nothing. 
I am living my life exactly as I would live it if I knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow. Or I guess another way to answer the question is this. If you could think of one or two or three different things that you would do differently this afternoon, knowing that Jesus is coming tomorrow, then just go ahead and do them. You don't need to know. Just live your life in a way that honors God. First Peter 3, or 1 Peter 1 again says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, my wife, Jackie, is a speaker and an author, and she travels around all the time and preaches at these uh, events, these women's events, that sort of stuff. And, and here lately, she's been gone um, just about every other weekend, if not every weekend. She's gone for two or three days. And so I have this thing that is becoming less of a, a nice thing, more of a habit, maybe a little bit of a conviction. Whenever Jackie is gone from the house, I feel a compulsion to clean the entire house. And I know some of you wives are like, that's a good thing. I know. I get it, um, but I'm not even trying to brag about it. It has become almost OCD level. I have to clean the house. I have to, if it's the season for it, I have to mow. The yard has to be perfect. Her truck clean, my truck clean, the laundry done, the dishes washed and put away. I make the boys participate in this, which they love. And they, uh, they, will, they will clean all the toilets. We make sure the beds are made. We will go and we'll pick out flowers. And there'll be a bouquet of flowers there waiting for her when she gets into the house. Everything has to be perfect. And I've thought about this a lot. Why do I do that? Right? Like, what is going on in my mind that makes me feel uneasy unless this entire thing is clean? There's a couple of ideas. One of them is, I've just always been there. Ever since I was a kid, my idea is that if you go away on a trip, you come back tired, and you don't need to be like immediately doing chores, right? Nobody wants to do that. You want to come home, and you want to rest, and you can't rest unless the house is spotless, right? So that's something that's going on in my mind. The other one, and this is the reality, is I just miss her. I don't like when she's gone. I hate when she is gone, but I have found that if I will work, if I'll scrub the toilets or clean the dishes or whatever it is, I miss her less. I'm my missing of her is abated as I work for her return. Let me tell you this, and I mean this. I'm not afraid of my wife. If, I, if she got home and there were dishes in the sink, she's not going to be mad or mean or hurt me in any way. Uh, it's not, that's not the thing. I'm not working out of fear. I'm working because I know she's coming back, and I'm working toward her return because it's going to be a good thing. It's going to be a very good thing. The same goes with Jesus. We're not afraid about him coming back. In fact, it's a very good thing. So let's work while he is gone. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.